Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 72 movies, one cage. Today's movie is The Boy in Blue from 1986. I'm Mike Manzi and with me is... Joey Lewandowski and this is our eighth episode. And as we talked about last time, Cage hasn't put out a movie in over a year. 1985 was the only dark year in his career. Here we pick him up a year and a half, two years later, and still the same old Cage we know and love. No more second fiddle to anybody else. Uh, you know, he plays the main character here. This is his movie. He's on the cover. This is this is a Cage vehicle. Anything you'd like to discuss before we dive in? I think there's a few things to point out at the top. First of all, this sort of tackles two things that I don't know that Cage has ever done otherwise, or not that I can think of immediately, that I didn't know he did. Number one, it's a sports movie. Yeah. And number two... It's like a biopic. Like he, I don't know if he, how many, has he played other real people? Just in adaptation, right? But that wasn't even a biopic. That was just him playing someone who existed in real life. Well, a version of a real person. The version of the real person was the the writer of that screenplay. So I'm not even sure if that counts. Yeah. You know, it's, it's two things that I never knew he did jammed together in one. I paid attention to one thing right off the bat to me was the the year in which this movie takes place. Most movies that take place during this time are westerns. You know, this is like prime western era here, like the 1880s. Yeah, we're we're late 1800s, so Cage plays a guy just for a time frame. Cage plays a guy named Ned Hanlon, and the real Ned Hanlon lived from 1855 to 1908. Cage is sort of playing to his age. So based on that, it's probably, you know, late 1870s, early to mid-1880s. And what was kind of cool about it is this movie isn't necessarily a Western, but it's like an Eastern, you know? <laughs> like, it yeah. takes place in the East during that time. Uh, and I haven't seen a lot of movies from this time period that took place in the East. And it's sort of weird to think about how all the hallmarks of Westerns, you know, there's no rules, everything's dirty, there's just outlaws everywhere... Some of that stuff is the complete opposite. You know, everything is prim and proper, everything is clean, except for Cage, really. But, I mean, the world he exists in is this clean, proper, far removed from the Western world. But at the same time, everybody is still equally shady. Everyone's out for themselves. Everyone's willing to swindle someone else for a quick buck. Yeah, even in the prim and proper world of professional rowing, (laughs) <laughs> there's still uh, scoundrels about. The one thing we should mention is that Ned Hanlon was a professional sculler. Is that what they say at the beginning? Sculling? Yes, is... it's sculling. Okay, and that is basically rowing. It's just rowing. Yeah, and apparently this was huge before baseball, football, soccer, those, you know, all the modern sports. So, so, so this was like, he was sort of the rising style, like the Kobe Bryant <laughs> of his time for this sport. And how do we know that? Because there's a title card when the movie starts that says, before these sports were the sports you loved, there was an even bigger sport, and that was sculling. And then you just get right into it, and Nick Cage is just rowing. It's, you sort of, you're dropped in in media res, you're in the middle of a race. It looks effortless how good he is at rowing. Yeah, it seems to be a unsanctioned race of some kind, right? Because uh, it starts off in Canada, where he's a Canadian, and he's yep. sculling up there. And uh, yeah, he, he is just a natural. And the guy next to him, who he's pulling ahead of, is not not so not having such a good time. And he, he pulls a dirty trick. He does pull a dirty trick. And this is something that I honestly don't know if there's a race in this entire movie, and there are four or five of them, where Cage doesn't get sabotaged in one way or another. Yeah, that is a theme <laughs> throughout, that even though they try and keep him down, like he finds a way to persevere. And in this race, he dives off of his boat to grab his oar, and he's so good that he regains that lead with like no problem whatsoever. He's very clearly the best at his sport, except for maybe one other person who we'll get to later, and that's sort of the big conflict or the big sporting event of the movie. But he's head and shoulders above everybody else that he races for most of the first half of the movie. It's really cool how you find out where he sort of got his talent for rowing. (laughs) Is that not like the best scene that comes up next? Yeah, I mean, he's just like... So after the race, all of a sudden, he's just like covered in soot. Like he's just like this dirty, filthy person. And I mean, he's criticized through most of the movie that he doesn't bathe. 
Like, it's this running joke among the fancy, the rich people. But you, you don't really, like, before, they, they don't explain why he's dirty before you see him as he's dirty. And then all of a sudden, just like he sort of was in the Cotton Club, you find out that he's like a bootlegger. Like, he, he's just, he's rowing liquor to other parts of Canada, just around town. And just has to get away quickly. Yeah, there's a, there's a good scene where he's uh, he like comes up on shore, and like the local minister has rallied the cops to stop him, <laughs> and he's just like so good at rowing because I guess he, this is just you know another night dealing with the cops to, to his character. So like he just outrows them and like pulls all these like moves to get away from him with his boat, and like he's just so good with the boat that they they can't catch him. Everybody is on shore chanting, "Repent, ye sinner." And he jumps in the water, he like drops his case of alcohol, jumps in the water, cuts the rope, and then basically like rams into the cop boat, because there's other boats on a rowboat, or other cops on a rowboat, he rams into them, and then just gets away. And time and time again in this movie, and I guess they maybe don't know his fame, but people try to catch up to him in rowboats, you're just not going to do it. Yeah, the Harbor Patrol <laughs> during this time was crap, just let's be honest. It was a funny thing, you know, like, people found out, like, who he was and how great he was, and they, like, challenged him, you know? It was, like, a different time. Like, people were challenging him sort of left and right just to prove, like, how good, you know, you, like, prove it all the time. You just got to prove it. It's like race. It's like challenging a track and field star to a race or trying to outrun him. Like, you know, cops trying to run him down. Like, he's in his element. And then it's just like you said, like it's proving how good he is because all these idiots are trying to beat him where he's most comfortable. Uh, so then he runs into that guy, McCoy, who wants to like sponsor him. The guy who's uh, not Kyle McLaughlin. <laughs> I could have sworn I looked him up like eight times just to make sure I wasn't going blind. David Naughton? Yeah. So, I mean, I just got like, I just pretended he was Kyle McLaughlin playing this because it was to me. I couldn't tell it, the difference. It basically was. I mean, I guess, you know, if Kyle McLaughlin wasn't doing Blue Velvet in 86, he would have been in this movie alongside Cage. And this guy like sets up a situation where he tips off the cops as to where Cage is so that he has to like leave Canada for a while and lay low so then like McCoy's like hey we'll lay low in America we should go to Philly because I got this race set up that you're gonna win and it was just like uh very strategic on that guy's half to like pull all these strings and get it's a very it's a very elaborate plan yeah, like Cage is Cage is in his little shanty shack. What is shanty <laughs> shack on the pier? Really, sort of dilapidated house. It looks like Popeye's house. Like it looks like something. It's like built on the water on stilts. And he's having sex with his girlfriend, or maybe just the town prostitute. I'm not sure. She's not really like she's not a fancy lady like Margaret is later. It's the weirdest on-screen sex because she's just sort of like flopping around. Yeah, it's. I think it's upplayed for comedic value because there's just it's not realistic. <laughs> and so McCoy, I think his name is Bill McCoy. His plan sort of starts to unfold. The cops show up, and Cage jumps out his second floor window into the water. McCoy is right there on a rowboat, and they row to a ferry. And Cage is like, "You're lucky that the ferry was here." And McCoy says, "No, I planned it down to the minute. It was you with your girlfriend up there who almost ruined everything." Hello to treat your new partner with all the trouble i went to arranging all this oh come on you're just lucky this boat went by lucky it was planned to the minute all that hanky panky of yours is what damn near buggered the works <laughs> can't imagine what she sees in you anyway oh really same thing you saw natural ability what a schemer man <laughs> you know? what a schemer well, like he had the time to set all that up like i don't know but the the thing i think about that that I got was, um, you know, he must have seen something in uh, in Ned, the Nick Cage character, where he's like, you know, this guy, I'm going to make, this is my golden ticket, right? He's like, he saw him rowing earlier the day. He, like, comes to visit him, and he's like, you're a moonshiner? You should be rowing. <laughs> and, and, and Cage is like, nah, man, that's not for me. So he, like, sets up this situation where he's, like, playing destiny it's like so awesome i don't know it sort of happens again like a little later with a different character i thought that was good storytelling just like in birdie when when cage becomes friends with matthew modine 
he like he instantly bonds with Bill and they become like fast friends. He's sort of against the idea and then all of a sudden puts his life in the hands of fate or in the hands of McCoy and just sort of embraces his new life and his new situation. Yeah, it seems like by the time they got to Philly that they sort of had one or two misadventures that we missed out on, you know, that that by the yeah. time they're down there, they're sort of on the same page and, you know, they're ready they're ready to race, they're ready to, you know, make their money, they're they're ready to go. And that's two movies in a row that are take that take place in Philly. What I, what I really thought was funny is when they get to Philly, they go to this inventor's house. I don't know how better to describe him, but he invented a sliding seat for rowing. And later in the movie, it's, it comes out that somebody offered him $50,000 for the patent. They go to see this boat that he's put this seat on, and it has, like, the classic, I, I just call it, like, triumphant music, religious music. It's like that classic, this is, like, the most beautiful thing he's ever seen, and they walk in and they're just in awe of this boat. Yeah, it, the thing, it's basically the, like, Excalibur. <laughs> That's what it reminded me. It's almost like a sword yeah. in it, in and of itself, too, the way it's shaped. And you're right, it's treated as, like, this holy object that, you know, as soon as he combines with this, there'll be no stopping him. And I also sort of saw it as, like, this is... The, you mentioned the guy's like a scientist or an inventor, and like this is like state of the art tech we're looking at right yeah. here for you know 1876. But uh, the guy's like, you know, no one's, no one wants to get on it. They, you know, they all laughed at me. And Nick Cage sees immediately. He's like, this is what I need to give me the advantage. <laughs> you know, he he just has the foresight. The alternative at the time is just to grease up your pants. That was strange. And they show all these other racers, you know, all these other college kids. People just have all of the grease in the world, and they're just, like, rubbing it on their backs and their butts and their top of their legs. And they're just doing everything they can just to get the, you know, the sliding advantage of this seat. Yeah, I didn't, I was, I didn't put that together because I was like, he's not doing that. And we didn't see him do that before. So is this something like he's a rookie and he didn't know what to do exactly? But then when they brought, you know, when he's like, this is the rowing seat, I was like, ah, okay. Like, it's just going to bypass that obnoxiousness of... (laughs) Literally, like, a gallon of, like, grease on your ass, just a row. The sliding seat is the best version of oiling up your pants. (laughs) That's, like, on the... It's going to be on the first advertisement in Sears and Robux, you know, that's what it says. (laughs) And so he gets on this boat in the next race, and again, he, he doesn't, you know, get sabotaged in this race, but he falls out of his boat, and it looks like he's having a really difficult time mastering the sliding seat. And then you don't see the race end. Bill just comes in. He's like, hey, he came in second. I won all this money. We sort of walk away from that race and find the results of it in the next scene. And then we get like a couple shots of him testing out the new boat on the lake at night, which was like really beautiful photography. That was really cool. And everyone's like, ah, look, it works. But then some people are sort of taunting him about it. That That's what happened, right? Like after he qualified, then he sort of like got the hang of it. And then the next day is like the real race where he like really kicks ass and he gets like his new blue shirt shirt and and he's like i want to be called the blue flash but the newspaper guy named him baby blue or something like that the the newspaper guy and i don't understand what's going on in the scene and maybe you can explain it to me they call him the boy in blue and cage doesn't like that because he says it makes him sound like a fancy boy just like we talked about before when we were watching racing with the moon there is sort of this like class warfare that in that movie they were calling them gatsby's in this movie Cage has a problem with what he calls, quote, Harvard men. Right. The girl that he falls in love with is betrothed to a Harvard man. And, you know, that just, gosh, there can't be anything worse than that (laughs) to Cage. And I I understand that, right? Because this is before Gatsby. So we can't be calling people that yet. Maybe, like, they're, maybe you could be like they're a Rockefeller or something. But I think the Rockefellers were sort of liked at the time. So maybe Harvard was just the epitome of snobbery. I don't think that Harvard's ever really been liked. So I think you can always use hard men sort of as a as an insult if you want it to be an insult. And it's only it's only like a hundred years since America, right? So like there aren't yeah. really that many colleges I'd imagine and you know, even back then it's probably very hard to get into Harvard. There's a scene where they're in a bar and there's like and I don't know what's going on, but there's like this conflict that is brought up again in the last shot of the movie. Bill and Ned are just sitting in the bar and then there's like gonna be this fight? Like what was 
that fight about? So he ends up winning the race, and it's like a huge upset because it's like his first ever official official race. So Ned Hanlon just like comes out of nowhere and, and sort of embarrasses everybody. So they send a drink over to his table, and everyone's like, you know, the gentlemen are like, here's a drink. And they give it to the newspaper guy because his trainer's like, ah, we're in training. And the newspaper guy passes out. So they attempted to drug Nick Cage that Ah. night so he couldn't race the next day. And then they just were like, all right, we'll just beat the crap out of him. So they chase him out of the bar and they run down like a back alley and hide under a whore's dress. Which is the best hiding spot. That is so good. That was, uh, that was Um, great. That was, (laughs) that was, that reminded me of the comically large dog catching nets from Birdie last week where you just get like this comic beat straight out of a cartoon or something. But then like he, he still, they still sort of get beat up because they like, they leave the prostitute's dress like too soon. Yeah, um, and McCoy still gets, get like, his arm broken. It seemed excessive. I'm not sure. Maybe they're trying to intimidate him, but it just seemed a little weird. It seemed, you're right. It just seems excessive. Maybe because it was, you know, they're out-of-towners. They're Canadians. This is America's turf. Like, they just need to watch their step. You know, it's not the Wild West, but it is the Wild East, and they do still need to sort of protect themselves. It's not like they're holding pistols or anything. The aftermath of the race is that he's given this... They hold, like, a ceremony in his honor, like the championship ceremony or whatever, and they're they're giving him a medal, but he's too busy. He, he sees Margaret for the first time, and he's too busy, like, hitting on her to know that they're in the process of giving him his medal. Like, he completely misses it. And I just felt like in this movie and sort of in every movie we've seen, it seems like he falls in love with every girl he sees all of the time. I wondered about that because... Each of his characters is like this Lothario, you know, like they're always hooking up with girls. They're always chasing girls. He's always falling in love. Like, I don't know. It's just an interesting progression of his career that so far he's stayed within that comfort zone. I wonder if he has in his contract that he has to A, be shirtless for a long period of time and B, make out with or, you know, have sex with at least one, if not more than one of the prettiest girls in the movie. Yeah. And I'm sure the producers saw him and were like, you got to take your shirt off because dude is just jacked in this you know like i'm a straight guy but like even if i was producing (laughs) this movie and it was about this character i'd be like oh you got to show that off because like it's just part of what happens when you row and there's even a moment when he uh is that the part where he meets maggie that you were talking about earlier yes yeah yeah yeah. so after after he meets maggie they're walking and he's just sort of talking to her and he says i look bigger with my clothes (laughs) off it was quite the reception you had the other day mr hanlon all that adulation must have been quite intoxicating. <laughs> yes. Uh, likewise. But you know what rather surprised me? My speech. That you looked so ordinary. From the newspaper reports, I was expecting some godlike giant of a man. Ah, well, they say I look bigger with my clothes off. Really? Yeah, she's this proper lady, and she just sort of blushes. He's like, I mean, without my rowing uniform on. But you can tell sort of from the from the get-go, even though she's engaged, which we don't find out till later, she sort of has a crush on Nick Cage pretty much from the he start. He calls it. He goes, uh, I think she's foolish for me. And then he goes, <laughs> he goes, I'm talking romance. I don't want to dwell too long on his physique, but in the last few movies, he's always working out. He's always shirtless. But it's always just sort of for vanity's sake. In this movie... He's ripped because he has to be. And on the back of the Blu-ray, he's not—he's shirtless, not in one, but in two different pictures. Hey, man, they need—you know—you get your money's worth. <laughs> then he takes her. He, ta- he gets to take Maggie on like a date that chaperoned by her aunt i think it seems sort of like a dream at first but then it, it just turned out to be like a real thing it's just the two of them and then her really 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 old aunt and he's basically saying oh man i wish she wasn't yeah, here would... and she was like what would you do would you try to kiss me and he doesn't he doesn't say anything because i mean who knows what he wants <laughs> to do i mean we all know we all know what he wants to do she's like okay you can kiss me and then as he leans in to kiss her She's like, Auntie, Auntie, isn't it beautiful outside? He's so, like, thrown off balance that he almost falls out of the boat. Yeah, which he would have been used to because he falls out of boats a lot. <laughs> but I love how off guard he is because he's usually so, like, confident about what he's doing. But then when he's, like, around Maggie, he's, like, a completely different person. Like, he is putty yeah. in her hands. And you don't see that. Like, everybody else who's trying to control him, he's fighting against. But with her, he just, like, is totally clueless what to do. It really goes to fit in with how uncomfortable he is in her social setting, I think. That he's uncomfortable because he's smitten with her. 
But also, he goes to the party, like, after their date, they go back to the house, they go to a party, and he's just so out of place, and he's the butt of every joke, and nobody's talking to him, he doesn't fit in. Again, this, like, class system where he just doesn't belong with the, the social circle he finds himself in. Yeah, he's, he ends up working for Maggie's dad, who's, like, Colonel Knox, who's, like, a super big-time rich manager gambling guy. <laughs> kind of seems like a really dangerous guy, too. But he, like, controls all of the top athletes, and now Cage is working for him, and there's, like, that garden party. Maggie is sort of hitting on you know, like a Harvard guy, and it's pissing off Cage, so he goes up and he, like, beats the crap out of him out of yeah. nowhere, just, like, doesn't even try and talk to him or anything. Oh, they're, they're talking about, like, how much he smells or, so, or like, how much he doesn't bathe again. Yeah. And he, he spends so bathes, much time yeah. in the water. I'm like, dude, <laughs> they need a new joke. But he causes, like, this huge scene. He, like, grabs Maggie. He, like, plants one on her, and he's like, can't you tell I love you? And she just, like, slaps him And then in the she face, slaps him. And she's yeah. like, I never want to see you. She's like, you're banned from the house. I never want to see you again. Yeah, and so what does he do? But he goes off and he just gets piss-ass drunk and just falls over and just, he's he's heartbroken. I mean, they were never together, but he just lost the love of his life. Yeah, he gets wasted the day of the next race so that, you know, mm. now that he's finally sponsored with, like, a, with like some backing and protection and stuff, he it should be smooth sailing, but, like, he goes and he screws it up and he gets, like, wasted and then he gets and then he gets arrested he gets drunk after maggie kicks him to the curb it seems like maggie's dad colonel knox gets him arrested the point was that he'll get out of jail colonel knox will spring him if he comes and he raises that's it yeah so after cage's drunk race i guess the colonel must have lost a lot of money on that or something and then cage gets back to his house late at night after his moonshine deliveries and there's like a full-on raid and the cops just like take Mm. him and throw throw him in 1800s prison which oh my gosh it's like beggar's prison like i can't or debtor's jail i can't imagine the conditions that actually must but, have been like but cage is willing to sit there for a year he doesn't want to give in to Knox. he likes the thing that he has going with mccoy but mccoy's like no you got to take this because if you're king of the world you're king of the rowing world right now but if you're in here for a year like what does he say like you won't be able to like slap your sister or something he says like some <laughs> really weird turn of phrase I'm, i don't remember exactly but he also says something along the lines of like you gotta sort of like take his deal and run with it and sort of just be the best you can be and make sure people remember you after you're gone you know like use the best of a worse situation that apparently is enough that cage is like all right let's let's, let's go sign this deal and he comes out and i think he wins his first race gets in better graces with uh, the family with Maggie, and then he buys Maggie a puppy. Yeah, because he sees her with Harvard again, like all the time, and we don't know that they're engaged, and he he won't know for a while. And I'm sort of going like, what is her problem? I actually just thought like her character liked his character and that they were going to get together, and she keeps sneaking around on him. And he buys her a puppy, and he's like, hey, I spent 20 bucks on it. It's a pure breed. And she says, you're not supposed to tell me that. I'm going to call him Rowboat. Ugh, so... You like him? I love him. Thank you. Cost me twenty bucks. He's a purebred. You're not supposed to tell me that. Oh right. Well, didn't cost me a dime. Found him kicking the street. <laughs> he says, "Oh no, I'm just kidding. I just I found it in the street or yeah. something." He's really a stray dog. I think again, he's shirtless. He might be working out or something, or he's doing work around Colonel Knox's house. He is either shirtless or his shirt is open, and she comes to thank him for the puppy. And the camera does this, like this slow tilt up his body. Did you notice that, or did you not catch that? Um, it's like her perspective of him, right? She hasn't really seen him in workout mode yet, or anything. She's seen him in a monkey suit at the garden party and when he's racing and stuff. But he's, she's putting up the, this tough front as like he doesn't bother me. He's all that, but you know I'm even more. And then she like I think what we're meant to see there is that she's finally like uh, I think there's something here that like this is dangerous and I can't resist this guy. And like you know sooner than later <laughs> I'm gonna have to go for him. He confesses his love to her, and that's when she drops the bomb on him that she's engaged to be married. Can I say one thing about his workout real quick? Yeah. When he first meets 
the Colonel knocks, they're looking at his thoroughbreds in his stable, mm-hmm. and he's going to McCoy. He's like, what do you know about horses? And he's like, I don't know anything. He's like, well, I think you could spy a, sp- a thoroughbred. You know, he's like, you found Nettie here. And, and like now, <laughs> almost like an, like 40 minutes later, Ned is working out in the stable. You know, he's like one of this guy's like thoroughbreds now. To Colonel Knox, he's just another money-making animal. Cage is sort of now all alone. Like the, the girl that he loved is no longer available to him. It's another day of a race. What's, what's kind of interesting about this movie is that there's a race about an hour in, and the movie's a little over an hour and a half, so there's still, like, a lot of time. Like, it's not the final sports action sequence of the movie, but they sort of build it up that it's, like, the final race. Did you get that it's sense? It's a huge race. It's the Charles River in Boston, so it's, like, a very significant yes. race because Massachusetts is, like, it's it's a big sculling area. Like, I guess when it first came over from, from England, like, it was huge in Boston. So this is, I think what it is, is it's a super significant race, and if he wins, you know, they say it's some real competition, and he'll be a national, he'll get national attention. I think it's a national championship. Okay, yeah, because we see a small montage of him winning a couple trophies. And this is right. the next race that we are focused on for like the entire race. And this is the first race that where he really has competitions. This guy, Trickett, a lot of the movie is people trying to make money on these racers. They're gambling on whether they should win, trying to get people to throw races so that they can make money on an easy loss. So there, there's a lot of pre-race positioning and jockeying. Trickett races this course, I think, like in 25 minutes, and Cage does it in over 26. It's like the first time where he's encountered someone who is at his level, and not only at his level, but but better than him. Yeah, and this guy's sort of been around for a while, so you know, he's expected to win and isn't scared of Cage at all and is laughing him off at a couple times. Like they go out later at night and the guy almost challenges him to a street fight, right? <laughs> he's like he's like, Yeah, we might be racing tomorrow, but I'm gonna beat you in the street and it had to get breaking up real quick. There's higher stakes for sure, even to the degree where uh, Knox will bring back Billy McCoy, even though there's been like this big falling out between everybody. Like Knox didn't really like Billy Cage doesn't hasn't really seen him in a long time, so like he brings him to Boston to lift Cage's spirits. And Cage is so happy to oh, see man. him. Bill shows up, I think, with the girl that he was having sex with in the, yeah, the, the movie. Yeah, the same girl. The two of them show up, and he says three times in a row, "You have no idea how glad I am to see you." And she's like, "I think we get it." <laughs> He's like, "Oh yeah, of course, stupid fool!" And he slaps himself in the face. Yeah, like, such as another one of those like all shucks moments that he, <laughs> he has there. I think the reason that Knox, maybe it's not the reason Knox brought him in, but it, it, it leads to something later. But McCoy goes and sabotages Trickett's rowing boat. He sort of unscrews a screw and like cuts it so that's going to snap off mid-race. Trickett will just lose because he won't be able to catch up. So like the seat will mm-hmm. fall off and there'll be no way he could even like fix something like that. I have to call it quits. But then Cage catches him doing it. He's like, I want to win fair and square. I want to win fair and square. I don't want to cheat and have to win. And so he goes the next day to Trickett. Hey, hey have, a, have a good race today. Uh, may the best man win. And Trickett is just like the ultimate dick. He's like, oh, he'll win. Cage goes over to the boat and basically just like rips the seat off. He's like, you should check your bolts more closely. He, he's like the only bastion of good in a world that's like corrupt and manipulative and evil. Yeah, I agree. It, it's, it's crazy, too, because he starts out the movie as a thief, basically. You know, we're supposed to believe that this is yeah. a man with no scruples, no morals whatsoever. And it turns out he's the only guy with any conscience like, walking around this freaking movie. I mean, you know, I just I mentioned like the the guy tried to start a fight with him on the street and, and McCoy comes to break it up. And he's like, oh, thanks, McCoy. And then McCoy's like... He's like, hey, 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 like I sabotaged this boat. And, and Cage is like, what are you doing? He's like, this is the only thing I can ever win fair and square. And like, you're screwing it all up. You're screwing, you know? So it's like, mm-hmm. it's a good point that like he becomes the noble one in this world of just like of rats and thieves. He's the only one with a moral code, but even that's pushed to the limit in the national championship. In the middle of the race, it seems like Trickett is taunting him and he sort of lets his anger get the best of him. And after Trickett, like, falls in the water, Cage rides, or, like, rows over Trickett's boat and rams it, gets disqualified from the race, and then gets banned from rowing in the U.S. for life. Yeah, uh, I think the way I saw it go down is there was major trash talking going on. Yes. 
Cage just like has had it. He like reached the boiling point, and I think like he just rams the guy, and it causes him to spin over, and then he rows over the boat entirely. I don't know. I guess. I guess that could cause the other guy to drown, uh, possibly. So, like, the, he's brought in front of like the uh, <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's 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 like the it's like the rowing yeah, tribunal. Yeah, I was gonna say like the sculling tribunal or something like that. And it's all the oldest men in America. I must suppose. I don't know. They're all almost older than America. Yeah, is. they may even be coming over from England and saying, you know word has come down about this but they tell him this is the most flagrant unsportsmanlike conduct in the 50 years of this sport's history and they say that rowing is a training ground for life and that it brings out something fine and clean in a man and they're just disgusted that nicholas cage who has been sabotaged in every single race he's had and who's been taunted all day and you know in the days leading up to this would ever let his emotions take the best of him and that's what blows my mind is that the other guy was never cited for heckling or trash talking and nobody else ever gets or has been caught but this sport is full of unsportsmanlike conduct it's so corrupt and uh, i'm also surprised because of his backing but then again i guess the colonel is canadian as well so he can't do anything to keep them in america but they do get Banned from America, well, banned from from racing in America for life. He returns home in like a really, really sweet scene. Like he gets off the boat and walks into his town, and everyone in the town is there to greet him. They sing to him, and they say, "We know what went down. Screw that guy. We're still on your side." And they have a, they have signs held up that like Ned's our man. They're all saying, "We're with you, Ned." And he just breaks down, and just starts crying. Like he's just overwhelmed with love after all his time he spent in America where he was the butt of every joke, he comes home and he's just embraced by people who love him. Yeah, I love that he's this hometown hero and that's all that really matters to these people is, you know, he he showed them that it's possible once and, you know, he's out there and he's still trying to do it. That's inspiring for them and he's super grateful when he gets back. The first time he came home, it was like a huge, like, parade with music and this one it's just sort of quiet and he walks through the door and and the whole crowd is sort of waiting for him there and he, and he just breaks down and it, it's very sweet I was glad that uh, he got back to canada safe and sound and i think that his return and the love that he feels sort of reinvigorates him and he decides that he he wants to race Trickett again in england because he's allowed to race you know outside the u.s And there's the world championships in England. See, I love that too. I think that's what the crowd sort of was like giving him like, you know, that idea somehow. Like he gets home and he sees that like, you know, even though he lost in the worst way, you know, he was banned from America for racing. These people still want, still love him and still believe in him. And so I think then he's sort of like, you know what, I should, America isn't the whole world. I should go check out some other countries and, and keep doing this. And so I think he returns to Philly. Because he goes back to Walter, the guy who made the sliding seat, and he pleads for Walter to, you know, take him in and, like, train him and help him beat Trickett in this race. Damn it, Walter, I know I can do it. I know I have it in me to be the best. I just can't do it alone. I need your help. I raced once. Oh, yeah. Practice, dream. Rub my backside raw. I even won a race or two. But I want to hawk my grandma for half the talent you pissed away, boy. So, uh, when do we start? Thank you, Walter. In my favorite 80s sports movie cliche, there's a training montage. And it's wonderful. I love 80s training montages. This one was... Bringing to mind a certain 80s movie. I am Rocky talking IV. Rocky IV. I got Rocky IV from this so hard, <laughs> it is not even funny. Didn't Rocky IV come out like 85, 86? Like, it's the same time period. Yeah, yeah, and that's why I don't think it was a coincidence. I think they knew about Rocky IV, and they heard that it's basically a movie of entirely of montages, and they saw the final training one, and they're like, you know what, let's do it. Let's let's make a Rocky montage. Like, And just like in Rocky Four, the star of this movie has to go overseas to win the world championship and to sort of reclaim his name. Yeah, and he trains in a barn. 
for some of the time as well. I noticed he's doing those sit-ups and push-ups as well. He's got an old... I mean, Mick isn't around Rocky IV at this point, but he does have an old guy training him. Yeah. Walter agrees to train him. They go to Knox. And they don't let Ned in Walter. the house. He's <laughs> like, you gotta stay out. Right, yeah. Ned is still banned from the property. <laughs> he's like, hey, let Ned race Trickett in England. And Knox is like, no, why would I do that? But it comes out that Trickett is basically too good like, he's just, he's way better than everybody else in the sport, and so nobody wants to bet against him, so Knox isn't making any money. And that Triggett's been with Knox for six months. Knox has made zero dollars off him because nobody's willing to bet against him, and like even, like, against the field. Like, he's just so much better than everybody else, and so that's ultimately why Knox agrees to let Trickett race uh, Cage in England. And uh, Walter also throws in a side bet with Knox, where he's like, I'll throw in the patent to my slidey seat, which is worth yeah. 50, 50 large. Is, so while Walter is negotiating with Knox over letting Cage race Trickett, Cage is out front, basically just sort of, you know, like, hey, wait at the car. He sees Maggie coming out with her fiancé, and they take off in a little cart, like a little buggy, and Cage sprints after them. Cage runs after Maggie, but no dice, because he... Like leaps on, he does that move from um, from uh, the Sean Penn move from Racing with the Moon. He leaps on the side like he did on the train, and like the horse and buggy's yeah. going, and he's holding on the sides and the window, and he's like, "I love you, I love you." And then the Harvard guy takes his his uh, cane and like whacks him on the on the knuckles, yeah. and Cage like falls. Yeah, Nick off. Cage gets caned and falls to the ground, like just sort of crumples up, and Maggie's like, "Stop, stop, stop the car," and she runs after him. And he just starts to try to sell himself to her. Ned, are you all right? Ned, listen to me. Please. Don't marry him, Maggie. I'm the one who loves you. Me, not him. Damn you! You scared the life out of me! Don't do it, Maggie! He's a wet goose! Take two hours to get dressed in the morning. He'd bore you silly. He's going bald, Maggie! Uses Dr. Morse's hair promoter, bald and boring. Stop it! What's the matter, Maggie? You afraid? But what you might not have gotten from that audio clip is that in the middle of it, Cage like takes his shirt off while uh, the Harvard man is criticizing him again for not bathing, and like wipes his chest off, and Maggie's just like standing there, like love struck by his body. And Cage, like, throws his sweaty shirt at the Harvard man. Yeah, it's the ultimate F.U., right? <laughs> it's, like... It's a, it's a real, it's a real super, power move. I mean, it's like dropping the mic and walking away. Advantage Cage. And I think that Cage selling himself to Maggie is sort of the Cage advice. I mean, normally the Cage advice is him talking to another guy about how to pick up women, but this is sort of him giving advice to Maggie about how to be a better her is basically just lose the zero and get with the hero. Yeah, he may have all the smarts and, you know, he may be from Harvard with the money, but I, I'm i a champion, right? You know, I'm a hero. I'm all this, you know, I'm I'm all that and, and the bag of chips as well. I love what Cage is doing because he sees in Maggie, he's like, here's like this super rich girl and it's like, she's going to be bored with this guy. Like, he knows better than she knows, you know? That's why I think this could, yeah. could serve as Cage advice because in selling them himself he's sort of giving her the advice that she needs to hear <laughs> i'm gonna go with that and my favorite line from that scene is the harvard man says have some respect man there's a lady present and like she's just standing there she has zero problems with what's going on she has two men fighting over her one shirtless and just like ripped you know what i mean like she's loving this even if she's not supposed to of the time She's definitely yeah, and I think she's a bit more. She's got like spit and fire, you know what I mean? Like she's not one of these. She doesn't play her role as dainty, you know. She's kind of a tough girl, like for for these times, right? She she has that little line when um, when he's signing the contracts with her father, and he, and she's like, "Shouldn't you get someone to look those over?" You know, and she's always making like these yeah. these little comments that just seem out of line for a woman of the times. So she seems to be sort of more of this forward thinking version uh, of those types of lady. Yeah, she's really like a modern woman and it, it feels like it never if they never say it to her, which is good, but like it feels like a lot of the things that she says, like one of the men in her life, either her fiance or her father, could be like, shut your mouth, woman, and just sort of like backhand her. She's not 
kowtowing to the societal regulations that are placed upon her, she's going to speak her mind, and nobody's yeah, stopping her. Yeah, that was her. definitely uh, definitely came through and made it much more interesting that she, like you said, is is this movie's version of the modern woman. She's not written as like a stereotypical woman in like a sexist sense. Like she's she's arguably like you know the strongest, the most independent character of anybody in this movie. You sort of get that really laid out for you in the next scene to warn him that she overhears her father talking about something, and she's not exactly sure what's going on, but it's something with the race, and she just sort of comes to warn Nicolas Cage. And not only does she warn him, but she, she gets compromised in her words, which are she's engaged to be married to this other man, but Cage still beds her, and then in the morning after they wake up and he brings her breakfast, which is just a cup of coffee... She's like, uh, how about you compromise yeah. me again? And he goes, hmm. <laughs> uh, so then there's a knock on the door, and it's, it's Colonel Knox, her uncle. So she's like naked in a bed sheet, and she's like, I don't know what to do. And Cage is trying to keep the guy out of... Because again, he's like on the second floor loft of like this sort of shack, but it's like an upgrade. It but is like a nice entrance spot. is like a clubhouse, treehouse entrance. <laughs> like from the floor, you have to climb up a ladder and it's still strange. And there's a newspaper as, uh, as wallpaper. And it's, it's kind of rude what Colonel Knox does, but I guess he's a man that's you know, free to go wherever he wants. And he just sort of pops open the little clubhouse hatch and just pokes his head in. And she's in the bedsheet, and she hides behind a dresser, and then Cage, like, dumps all of her clothes on top of her, and she's just sitting back there. And it's a really funny scene. Like, it's it's a scene that you've sort of seen played out a bunch of times, where, you know, one guy's trying to get another person to leave because there's someone in the room that he can't see. But I, I thought it worked really yeah, well Yeah, it was here. funny, and also what Cage agrees to do is 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 cool too because the guy uh, Knox comes in and he's like I want you to basically he's like I want you to throw the race and uh, you know he would Cage would never agree but since he's trying to hide the girl he's like yeah 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 sure sure no problem anything you want and Knox is like really wow I didn't think you'd be so practical about it. like you finally come around and he's like genuinely fooled by the performance and you know I just thought that was uh, very delightful and then, like, the, the next scene is basically, it's Maggie's wedding, and wh- they, they start with the camera really far away, and I was like, even after she just had sex with Nicolas Cage, like, she's going to marry that guy? And then they zoom in, and she just marries yeah, Nick Cage. Yeah, things happen rapidly in the last 15 minutes. It goes right from that scene to them eloping <laughs> and taking that great old-timey photo. And so, after, so the, the condition that she got to marry Cage... Or it's it's worked out that, you know, because he's going to throw the race for Colonel Knox, he gets to marry Maggie. But then as soon as they're married, he mails the money, the $10,000 that Colonel Knox gave him to throw the race. He, he mails the $10,000 back to Colonel Knox with a note that says, I race to win, and says he's not going to throw the race, which is... Amazing! Like that's such a strong move that he 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 plays both sides and he wins. You know what I, I, mean? I love that he gave like this false hope to uh, to the colonel, where you just picture colonel going like, "Oh, finally, everything's coming up roses. All my ducks are in a line." And then in the next scene, not only is like his daughter married to the guy, but the guy returns the bribe money and is like, "You know what? I got your daughter. I don't need your money. I'm gonna kick your ass, man!" Like. He's just like super like power move again. Like And like you were saying, it all happens really fast, but I think that because it all happens really fast, that moment's even funnier. Yeah. You know what I mean? That like that literally a minute of screen time ago, everything was in the colonel's favor, and now all of a sudden he has nothing and he has, you know, a motivated Ned out to beat it's his race. Pretty racer. slapstick as far as the timing, but it never feels like out of character for the film you know like there are all these sort of whimsical moments like even when they get to the tams river like you know the old guys like pouring champagne in it and they're standing there all dressed up looking you know really nice and stuff like there's just like these nice little moments of like of charm throughout uh and none of it none of it seems to uh, betray like the, the what the movie's going for like the tone of the movie and so knox hires bill in the ultimate double cross he gives him the $10,000 he was going to give Cage. He gives Bill the $10,000 to sabotage Cage's boat. Yeah, and almost gets caught, but does. And he, he, he comes up to, and like, you know, Cage is there. And I think Bill says something like, there's still time to throw the race 
you know, there's still time to make Colonel Knox happy. And Cage says, no, I'm going to win today for my friends. Yeah, but that was just like, what another fuck you? <laughs> He's just like, yeah. Yeah, I was like, yeah, piss off, Bill. Like, like you gotta get out of here. Not for you, pal. <laughs> and so we're finally at the final, you know, the, 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 the big race of the movie. The world championship. This movie takes place in, 18, in, the, in, in the 1880s. It comes out in the 1980s. And the score throughout is, in this race in particular, it's like synth and crazy and, like, really 1980s, and not at all 1880s. It doesn't necessarily fit the period whatsoever, I'll give you that, but I, I, know, I know we might we might have conflicting views of this, but I was digging the music a lot. Like, I think I'd like it if it was just a soundtrack I was listening to or in another movie. It kind of captures the intensity of some of the racing and training moments, uh, but overall, you're right, it... it does not serve the time period as well as it could. I didn't hate it. I think it caught me off guard. It, 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 it really fits this final race well, and then all of a sudden you remember, oh wait, this is like 100 years earlier, and then the music just seems wildly out of place. But if you're just engrossed in the movie... It works really, really well. It does sort of. It does sort of help the movie feel more like Rocky Four at moments because of the rock synth. Yeah. Although we don't have James Brown singing "Coming to America" for five minutes in the middle of the movie, which I think would have made this movie even better. <laughs> well, he did. There was a moment where he was coming to America, so they could have fitted in at some point. <laughs> there was there was an opportunity. Uh, but in the middle of this last race, you see Bill's act of sabotage come to fruition. And one of the, you know, rings that keeps the the rowing, the oar in place, starts to come loose. Cage has to stop rowing and, you know, use his fingers to try to, like, tighten up the the, the washers on the things. And his whole team of helpers in the boat behind them doesn't have a wrench, which seems like a major yeah, oversight. because the guy who's, for all intent and purpose, the mechanic, is on the boat following him, and it is his team. You know, it should be like his pit crew. If anything, if he loses an oar, they should go out there and give him a new oar or anything. But you're right. They are just empty-handed. And so Bill, in, like, the ultimate act of redemption, like, a day earlier or hours earlier, had just sabotaged Cage's boat, but Bill grabs a wrench, dies off... Colonel Knox's boat, and then swims over to Cage, fixes it, and then Cage goes on to again, like, he's so far behind, but because he's just motivated, and he had the best trainer, and he's just this world-class talent, ultimately catches up and then beats Trickett. In the beginning of the race, he's kicking Trickett's ass, too, before the oar yeah. breaks. And then when he fixes the oar, he, like, catches up right away again. It's like he's way better than that guy. Like, that guy was all hype. Uh, and then, because he does fall super far behind the la- fall super far behind the last time, again he ends up winning the race. And like he, not I'm going to say he wins it with ease, but it's not like he wins it by a hair either. He like he beats the guy fair and well, not fair and square, but he beats him square. And then, so after Cage wins, they're they're all just it's like the night of the race, and they're everybody's sort of celebrating. And Bill comes up to them, and it's clear that they sort of, you know, that they're not, like, friends again, but they've, they've patched things up. Yeah, Bill came out um, with the wrench, so that, is a, that earned a lot of points in the friend book for, for Nick Cage, I believe. And then, so Bill is there with his now fiancé, or, you know, the, the Nick Cage's former girlfriend from the start of the movie, and these two guys come up to, to, to Bill and say, we got a message for you from Colonel Knox. And, and they proceed to, like, do, like, an old-timey beat-em-up, like, one guy just grabs his elbows, and the other's just, like, you know, punching yeah, every couple seconds in the punches, stomach. and he's like, ugh, ugh. It's, like, very, very well-timed and calculated. And his fiance calls, and she's like, Ned, Ned, come help Bill. And he raises up to them, just like it was in the bar, you know, 20 minutes into the movie when they tried to drug Nick Cage. They, they have the same line, like, there's just two guys, and there's their joke, like, you get the two on the left. And the guy's like, no, you get the two on the right. And they just say the joke, and then it's freeze frame. On a dime. It just stops. <laughs> just like it's two movies in a row that just sort of, like, end. I mean, this didn't have the amazing ending of Birdie. But I did really like the final freeze frame in this. I, I always yeah, love it. It was still very frame. unexpected and rewarding, you know? Like, I felt like, like that was a good moment right there. They knew what they were doing. They were going out on a high note, you know? And uh, the movie was over. Let's just give him one last little laugh. 
And then in case you were worried about what happened to the real-life guy, you know, who died 107 years ago, after he completed his rowing career, he ran for political office and won in a landslide. There you go. And then he lived to the ripe old age of about 56 or something like that. 52. 52. Hmm. Well, back then people just, you know, yeah, that's pretty Back then it wasn't that bad. So I have a couple little tidbits about the cast and crew of this movie. And then if you have anything else, we can, we can chime in then. So the guy who wrote this movie, Douglas Bowie, and I don't believe I've seen anything else he's ever written, but weirdly enough, the guy who wrote The Boy in Blue... His first movie he ever wrote was called The Girl in Blue. Interesting. Was, is that about a female? And as far as I can tell, it has, nothing to, it has nothing to do with it. It's some sort of love story with a lawyer and some girl. And they're, I think they're on the water again. But, you know, it's just weird that, you know, he's, he only wrote 12 things. And two of them <laughs> basically have the same title. Just a gender swap. The other thing I wanted to point out was that we're always looking for these cage connections between characters. Um, or between actors. So Cynthia Dale, who plays Maggie, will return to Cage Club shortly. Uh, she has a minor role in Moonstruck, which is coming up. I think that comes out the next year. I think we're doing that either next week or maybe the week after. Um, and then Christopher Plummer, who plays Colonel Knox. Christopher Plummer was in National Treasure, I believe, as um, Nick Cage's grandfather, dad. I believe. Right? Because uh, Voight plays his okay. dad. Okay, I, I haven't, haven't seen either, National yeah. Treasure in a while, but yeah, so so the top two, the next two Bill people, so Maggie and Colonel Knox both return to Cage Club. Bill McCoy does not. David Naughton was never in another movie with Nicolas Cage. Yeah, and that isn't Kyle MacLachlan. <laughs> I was wrong. I like this movie. There still hasn't been a Cage Club movie that I haven't liked, but this one wasn't my well, favorite of the batch. This was made in Canada. Um, it's a Canadian film, so it's also somewhat of an indie film, just judging by you know the production and everything um so it's i haven't heard of this movie since we decided to do cage club but for what it is i actually enjoyed it very much i'm not a big sports movie guy but i am a big like biopic guy and i thought it was a good you know it's a good run-of-the-mill biopic about this guy i never even heard of before that's why I, I did like that about it that that it was based on a, a really sort of like you're talking about earlier like you know the, the kobe Bryant of sculling like the best the best athlete of the sport that I didn't know about. And so it's cool to sort of learn about, because I really like a lot of sports. I've never heard of sculling. Uh, but it's cool to learn about the guy who is sort of, you know, the grandfather of sculling, like you know, one of the best of the sport all time. Yeah, so thank you, the boy in blue, for, <laughs> for, for educating. <laughs> so that'll just about do it for the eighth episode of Cage Club. Next time, we have the third and final installment of the Francis Ford Coppola trilogy, uh, when Peggy Sue got the married. Uncle Francis trilogy, as I've taken to call it. Uncle yeah. Francis Can't trilogy. Wait. That should be pretty good. That, I think that's pretty tonally different. That's, that's more of a comedy, so. right? I remember, uh, I've seen most of it, but never in its entirety. I do know uh, Nick Cage makes an unusual choice <laughs> as far as his acting in the next film. I'm sure we will talk about it when we get there. I'm sure we will. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of Cage Club. See you next time. <laughs>